This is Zeninish. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jared Brown. And Dr. Brown is a professor, a trainer, a researcher, and a consultant, and he knows so much. And we are so privileged and happy to have him talk to us today, and we will be discussing alexithymia. So welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for having me. Honored to be here. Awesome. So let's just jump right into the questions. And the first question may seem really basic, but I want to make sure that we understand what exactly is alexithymia? Yeah, you bet. I don't think it's a basic question because I I do a lot of talks on this. I've written on the topic. I get emails frequently from folks that after reading like these articles or seeing podcasts I've gone on, now they finally have a term that goes along with something they see all the time in their spouse or the clients they work with. I have a lot of different degrees. I have a doctorate degree in psychology, and this is a topic that has never been discussed in even my doctorate degree program. So in my experience, most folks have not had training in alexithymia, even though there's been thousands of articles written on the topic, mm-hmm. several books. It's not a disorder in and of itself. So the best way to sum it up, think of it as emotional blindness, where the client doesn't have words to express their emotions. So if you go deep in the weeds in this literature, oftentimes you might see it referred to as a deficit, a personality trait. Sometimes it's been referred to as a psychological impairment. However you want to phrase it, basically it's a client that has a really hard time naming their emotions, labeling them, making sense of them. And we'll talk about a whole host of things to consider with this. But at the core, think of emotional unawareness. Some of the literature points to the fact that alexithymia may contribute to social attachment problems. So if any of you study attachment theory, trauma-informed care, the adverse childhood experiences research, complex developmental trauma, you would do quite well learning about this topic too. There's numerous studies that show that folks with high levels of toxic stress and trauma likely are dealing with elevated levels of alexithymia. Interestingly too, there is some literature that talks about folks that have true alexithymia may have limited imagination, so introspection may be a little bit lower. Hmm. They oftentimes think more concretely. So if you're ever talking to someone that has true alexithymia, it can almost come off as the person may lack perspective taking in some cases, or can look like empathy deficits on the surface. So oftentimes, I mentioned like people email me frequently. The, The common email that I get probably at least once a week from someone that's read one of my articles is now I know what is going on with my spouse. Every time I talk to my spouse, they can never share their emotions with me. There's some block there. 
after they learn about this, I, I notice that it helps create more compassion, mm-hmm. more patience, and it helps us dig deeper into the weeds. What could be driving the bus with this? The question sometimes comes up too is like, what causes this? And the causes are all over the map, but there's organic causes. So when I say organic, traumatic brain injury could be a factor. If the child was exposed to drugs or alcohol in utero, there's some evidence that shows that prenatal drug or alcohol exposure may contribute to higher levels of alexithymia. These are all organic-based. But for us as professionals, there's a whole line of research literature that also talks about just professionals who are dealing with burnout are much more likely to be dealing with alexithymia themselves. So if any of you are working in a professional setting and you're responsible for training and supervising and the health and wellness of your organization, learning about this topic would also be very, very helpful. Before I go deeper in the weeds, any thoughts or questions I can clarify on any of the information I've shared so far? No, it's a great definition. And uh, hearing the part, I hope we talk a little more about that, but hearing the part about persons who are in the helping profession and um, kind of the caretakers of the social emotional wellness of others may be experiencing this as well. That's very absolutely. Yeah. I think I, I probably dealt with this at times without a doubt. And it's it can be situational in nature. So for example, if you're dealing with a high degree of burnout from your job and you get that burnout treated, and maybe you're sleeping better and eating healthier and exercising, all those things can reduce alexithymia. Now the organic side, if there's a brain injury involved or something like that, that's a little different, a little more tricky. Yeah. So just to make sure everyone knows what this is to just briefly recap. So alexithymia, not a disorder. It's a trait that co-occurs with all kinds of conditions. So I'll point out a few. If you look at the autism literature, about half of folks in the autism spectrum have alexithymia, according to the literature. Hmm. If any of you are working with folks in like drug and alcohol treatment programs, Research points to the fact that between 50 and 65% of people with drug and alcohol disorders likely have alexithymia. If you are working with violent offender populations, there's plenty of research literature that's also now showing that alexithymia could be a risk factor for anger, violence, aggression. If you're working with someone in a suicide prevention kind of program, multiple studies are also showing that alexithymia could be a risk factor for suicide. Of course, there's all kinds of other variables to take into account. So basically, alexithymia, difficulty identifying emotions, describing emotions, they can think more concretely. They're oftentimes more hypersensitive to physical sensations. So if you are a therapist, a counselor, whatever role you play, this is how alexithymia could present when you're interacting with a client. The client comes into your office or whatever you're doing, whatever setting, you can visually tell that client's in distress. But when you ask the client, 
how are you feeling? What's going on? They might say, oh, I'm feeling fine. Other than my head hurts, my chest hurts, my back hurts. I feel tired. The way that alexithymia presents oftentimes comes out as body-based complaints. So in extreme circumstances, someone that has a high level of alexithymia may think they're having a heart attack because they're having all these emotions they can't get out of their body and all these emotions go into their body and wreak havoc on their physical health. They call 911, they go to the emergency room thinking they're having a heart attack, doctors run all the tests on them, can't find anything wrong. That might be a very extreme example of alexithymia where there's that block to get the emotions out. So those emotions build up in the body and then come out sideways as headaches, chest pain, stomach aches, fatigue, and things of that nature. Hmm. So that's very interesting. I, I want to um, take our lens and focus it a little more uh, when we're looking at different ways that it can manifest. And let's look at like the school-aged child. And and can you tell us how maybe a school counselor can recognize the signs of alexithymia in students, considering its nuanced presentation sometimes and impact on emotional understanding and expression? Yeah, everything I said would still apply to the student. And again, it depends on the, the student's background and disability status as well. Mm -hmm. But does the student seem to have a consistent pattern of not recognizing emotions in others or themselves? Do they oftentimes get emotions mixed up? Do they inaccurately label emotions? Do they not are do they have a really difficult time using emotions in like a social situation where they're using emotions? ineffectively or incorrectly and it almost comes off as that that person might be a little more socially awkward that could be a factor interestingly too some people with alexithymia may have a higher tendency to social conformity and they oftentimes again have problems with introspection self-awareness so in some cases if it's a school teacher school counselor school psychologist if you're asking a student a lot of how and why questions, tell me how you feel. Why are you feeling that way? That will be a huge barrier for that student to be able to mm -hmm. have a dialogue. You might get a lot of one word responses where the, the child has a very difficult time, again, answering those questions specifically around why am I feeling the way I feel? So Right. Are they feeling depressed, anxious, fearful, worried? They may have a hard time naming that. But again, it could come out as more somatic body-based symptoms. So if that child is consistently going to the school nurse complaining of all kinds of body pain and aches and things like that. Now, I'm not saying it's alexithymia in every case, but it, that could be a red flag indicator. And again, this can really get in the way of perspective taking and in some cases people with true alexithymia can present to others as very formal and very rigid there are all kinds of disorders that have been talked about within the context of alexithymia 
ADHD, you're going to find several studies that have found that alexithymia may be more common in folks with ADHD, people with extensive trauma histories, as I mentioned. If it's a student with a chronic pain syndrome, higher rates of alexithymia have been noted. If it's a student with an eating disorder, there's plenty of research that talks about alexithymia within the context of problematic eating behaviors. And the list goes on and on and on. So those are just a few of the disorders you'd want to kind of be aware of that alexithymia traits have been noted to be elevated. And I forgot to mention in the beginning, the, the, the general rates of alexithymia are about 10% in the general population. Mm-hmm. When you start getting into more clinical populations, extreme medical disorders, neuropsychiatric, neurocognitive, extensive trauma histories, and substance misuse, those numbers go up astronomically. Um, Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, did you state a little earlier that there is more social conformity when there's alexithymia? Yes, because of the emotional block there, sometimes kids with alexithymia may struggle with navigating those complex emotions that are so needed in group settings. Mm -hmm. So they may not know how to react, especially with emotions. Mm -hmm. So they may just go along with the crowd and mimic what they're doing, even though maybe inside they don't believe it. Mm -hmm. They go along with it because, again, there could be some perspective taking deficits. There could even be some co-occurring empathy deficits as well that get in the way. Yeah. And just that whole teenage thing of wanting to fit in and wanting to quote unquote look normal. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So when we're when we're looking at that, now we're aware of the term and 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 how it's defined. What might be some strategies that you can suggest for effectively engaging students with alexithymia in school counseling sessions or even within the school setting? There are all kinds of interventions talked about in the literature, but we have to first start by knowing what this is. I think that's the frontline intervention. So if you're listening to this, that's the starting point. We we have to know the term. We we have to know the red flag indicators, how it can present. So awareness is key. And interestingly, there, there's a good handful of studies that have also showed that just educating clients about alexithymia reduces alexithymia. So just creating more self-awareness for that student or even the student's parents can play a role in reducing alexithymia traits. If any of you have ever been trained in DBT, Mm. a couple studies have shown that DBT may actually lower alexithymia. If any of you have ever studied mentalization or mentalization-based techniques or therapy, a couple studies have shown that those approaches can be helpful. Music therapy may be helpful. Group therapy, if done by a clinician who understands this topic and you're using appropriate forms of communication, you're using feelings charts, you're role-playing, that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Journaling has been shown to be an intervention in the lexithymia literature. So just helping students journal mm-hmm. their thoughts 
and starting to connect their body sensations to their emotions. And a lot of it's common sense too. If the student isn't sleeping well, if they're stressed out, if they're not eating well, getting those things under control can play a role in reducing alexithymia symptoms. Because again, burnout of any kind can play a role in exacerbating this. Yeah. Post-traumatic growth interventions, you'll find some literature on that. Mindfulness, resilience-based interventions, even doing interventions through an emotional intelligence lens. A couple studies have looked at that. So those are a few that come up. I can definitely go deeper in the weeds if you'd like, or if you have questions on any of those, I'm more than happy to give some practical examples. I think those are great starts. And um, I'm I'm hoping that you'll be open to, if we do get some questions um, after this airs, um, if I could shoot them to you, um, so that we can get more answers if our counselors would like some um, more discussion on these topics. Absolutely. Um, feel free to share my email with folks. And one other intervention I forgot to mention that I think I, I love, love this intervention for really anybody, for us as professionals as well, is self-compassion. Oh, yeah. A couple studies have shown if you can teach people to have greater self-compassion, that may lower alexithymia traits. And self-compassion is equally important for us as professionals. So looking at some self-compassion literature can be very, very helpful. Great. That's wonderful. Um, and as I know that you're well aware of, when you're working within a school setting, it's all about collaboration and working in conjunction with your parents and the students and um, all of the different stakeholders in that child's life. And so I, I'm wondering if maybe you could recommend some approaches for school counselors to collaborate with parents and teachers in supporting students with alexithymia in order to kind of enhance that social emotional well-being piece. I think maybe providing some literature handouts, educational handouts, maybe offering some just basic education to parents, classes on this topic, because this is a topic that doesn't only affect students, but this is a topic that affects parents. And I talked about burnout from a professional lens. If if you guys just Google parental burnout and alexithymia, you're going to find several studies that talk about when parents are burnt out, alexithymia goes up. And in extreme examples, that could be a recipe for child abuse and child maltreatment, the literature says as well. Yeah. So a couple things I would recommend if you're wanting to start maybe educating parents about this. Talking with parents about what really goes into our emotional understanding, how people perceive emotions. Because maybe on the surface, to somebody that doesn't study this, emotions seem pretty clear cut, but really how people perceive emotions is very complex. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of neuroscience behind it. So for example, if you look at the literature on just emotional understanding in general, you probably want to add emotional intelligence and social intelligence to your list of topics to learn about. You have to understand executive function. That's one of my main areas of focus. Executive function is the boss of the brain. 
Yeah. The CEO of the brain, it relates to working memory and cognitive flexibility and inhibition and all kinds of other things. It's very important, too, to understand the topic of theory of mind, which is basically perspective taking and understanding the internal mental states of other people. And then again, talking about how that child notices emotions. How do they understand? How do they label? How do they use emotions? Can they recognize emotions in others and themselves? And again, someone with alexithymia will oftentimes have challenges in many of those areas. Mm-hmm. So teaching parents about that and parents that can truly grasp this and understand it, I think it can open the door up for parents to be more patient, to be more understanding, be more curious when their their child does things that may be frustrating. Mm-hmm. And it can really help parents move in that direction, I think, of just really becoming like a neuroscience-informed parent, an attachment-based parent, and even a trauma-informed parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I really like about the suggestions that you just made are, you know, within our scope and and um, within our realm of school counseling, many of the suggestions that you made are things that we can execute and not even really have to use the word alexithymia. We can get parents, we can start parents thinking about it, doing some research on their own, or just even better parenting or more parenting skills or tools in their toolbox for um, having more well-rounded and more um, socially and emotionally equipped children. Absolutely. This is a, it's not the only variable, but it's a a good piece of the puzzle. I think if if you understand these related topics, we're going to be in a much better position to support and encourage and help that, that child thrive in whatever setting the child is in. And I would say one last thing on this is to really educate all of us and parents that If that child has alexithymia, emotions can sometimes be confusing. Mm. They can be scary. They can even be a mystery. They can be overwhelming. And it can contribute to more emotional dysregulation. So if you work with kids with emotional intensity problems, disruptive behavioral problems, I'm not saying every child with, with those presentations has alexithymia. Right. But it's pretty clear from the literature that a, a good chunk of them probably have traits of this. So it could add another layer mm-hmm. of intervention that could help reduce some of those problematic behavioral challenges. Maybe that student is exhibiting in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and, and talking about, you know, continuing this talk about different resources and skills and strategies, um, in your experience, what are some effective like school-wide programs or initiatives that have been successful in addressing the needs of students with alexithymia or even like those t- uh, tools and techniques that are just helpful in general, even though they are also helping students with alexithymia? I'm not aware of like specific school-wide programs that have focused just on alexithymia it's possible it's out there i'm just not sure Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. because it is a topic that I don't think is taught widely in college programs. Yeah. So if you're doing like social emotional learning and, and things like that, indirectly you're, you're teaching some strategies, but anytime you can teach folks how to increase emotional awareness you can use feelings charts you can maybe get animals involved or play therapy or music or art Mm -hmm. somatic based approaches exercise yoga i mean all of these things can be helpful helping students just learn how to again process hard things it's okay to feel stressed out, teaching them better stress management strategies, coping strategies, teaching greater perspective taking, helping enhance empathy and empathetic understanding of other people. Anytime you can enhance social skills mm-hmm. indirectly, you're, you're, you're combating some of these things. Mm-hmm. If you work with students that have a high degree of negative emotionality, irritability, rumination, anger, aggression, violence, yelling, screaming, targeting those things. I'm a big fan of like functional approaches. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in another program right now. I'm actually going to school for becoming a, a nutritionist and I'm really going down the route of the functional nutrition route. If we applied functional nutrition interventions to what I'm talking about, we look beyond the symptom. The symptom is the leaf of the problem. We got to peel back the layers and get deeper. Because I'll give you one example. Let's say the child in the classroom has attentional issues. Maybe the first thing that pops in the teacher's mind, this child has ADHD. Well, there's probably a multitude of factors that could cause that child to have attention issues. Could it be sleep deprivation? Could it be digestive health issues? Could it be a food allergy? Could that child be dealing with food insecurity and hasn't had a meal that morning? So we have to get beyond the symptom presentation to get to the root cause. And if we can apply that to alexithymia, we're going to try to peel back the layers as to why that student struggles with naming, processing, and labeling emotions. Could it be an undiagnosed neurological issue? Could it be something medically going on? Could it be a lot of trauma going on in that child's home? There's a couple studies that show that alexithymia may increase the risk of cyberbullying and just bullying in general. So is there some bullying and teasing going on that is maybe making this worse? So if you utilize a functional approach, look beyond the symptoms. Yes. And what I'm hearing in this is also utilizing the triage and the collaboration um, that takes place, especially within, you know, student support teams, you know, involving the school psych, involving the school nurse, involving the behaviorist, um, maybe even special education, but using um, all of the different persons that are there to help a child to try to kind of figure it out in the way forward. Yes, absolutely. Without a doubt. So in thinking about all this and and trying to synthesize it and thinking about the role of um, a school counselor, what are some ways that you 
might suggest that a counselor is able to um, connect with and then maintain that connection and communication uh, with a child that may have alexithymia? Consistency, predictability, motivational interviewing, trauma-informed care approaches, making that student feel known and valued and heard, focusing on the strengths, maybe engaging with that student in a way that you're incorporating movement into your intervention rather than sitting in an office going for a walk. Mm. Mindfulness meditation can be helpful, music interventions. This is all support in the lexithymia literature. Just being kind, calm, and patient, modeling healthy emotions. Maybe it's a child with extreme neuropsychiatric, neurocognitive impairments, and some of the challenges that student may be dealing with. The teacher or the school counselor may also need to involve other care providers with other expertise. So working through a multidisciplinary lens can be very, very helpful because if that child's also dealing with a sleep disorder, nutritional deficiencies, maybe it's a sensory processing issue or language or whatever it is, not one of us can do all wear all these hats. So working with other providers, making the appropriate referrals and trying to educate the parent along the way and doing it as a team. Yes. Probably is the best approach. And I'm a big fan of integrative approaches. Me too. I give a lot of talks on psychoneuroimmunology. That's a whole nother topic we could talk about down the road. That's an emerging field of study that absolutely should be considered when when we're working with anyone with an illness or a disorder or disease. It's called psychoneuroimmunology. It's the interconnection between psychology, neuroscience and the immune system, the gut-brain health access, hormones, fascinating field of study as well. Mm. Um, so we've talked about the, the end of the connection piece, and you've given us some wonderful um, reminders and you know strategies uh, that we can implement. implement. Um, I want to know about the other end of the pendulum in that are there any like common misconceptions about alexithymia that maybe school counselors should be aware of in order to uh, like avoid potential barriers in uh, supporting a student? Yeah, I mean, it, it can oftentimes maybe look at like a student is just bored and checked out and doesn't want to be there. So when that happens, be curious. Could it be something called anisogosia that could be going on? Anisogosia, according to research literature, is like the number one reason why people aren't successful in treatment. Anisogosia is the lack of awareness that the person even has a disorder or a deficit. It's going to be more common in folks with like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, some neurocognitive impairments. But if that, if, if, you're a therapist or counselor and you're asking a student a lot of how and why questions and that student responds with one word responses or yep, nope. Don't jump to the conclusion that that student maybe is not wanting to be there. Maybe they just don't know how to answer that question. Mm 
if the student is consistently getting removed from class, being disruptive on the playground, in the lunchroom, just really rubbing people the wrong way, again, stay curious. Could alexithymia be at play in some of these cases? So those would be a few things, I think, to kind of be on the lookout for. There's many more. But again, I the, the research is very clear that alexithymia is a threat to therapeutic engagement if the therapist doesn't understand this topic. It comes up in the literature. Again, there's all kinds of other things that can lead to breakdowns in the therapeutic relationship. Perspective taking deficits, trauma triggers, trust problems, just the client-clinician mismatch. There's a lot of things to consider, but alexithymia is one of those that if the therapist does not understand this topic, mm-hmm. therapy counseling oftentimes is not as successful as when a therapist is truly informed about this topic. Yeah. And thinking about uh, the school counselor and again, our scope and lens, I I know in speaking with like uh, special education and speaking with our behaviorists that they are aware of alexithymia, but, you know, I think it's very important. You, you just said exactly what I'm thinking is that that awareness and knowing about it. And I just wanted to make sure that our school counselors did know about it and what it was, because then it helps us be better players um, in the success of a student who may be experiencing this. Without a doubt. And this is a great starting point if you're listening to this. Maybe getting training on this, staying current on the research literature just doing Google searching, starting to saturate yourself in this literature. Because a few years ago, I didn't know much about this topic at all. But now that I'm learning about it, writing about it, talking about it, it's really opened the door to a better understanding of complex human behavior and human emotions that I I didn't have before. So if you're working with people in any capacity, learn about this topic because it is a threat to overall human health and wellness, especially if it goes on for long periods of time. So are there any closing thoughts or points that, um, you either want to reiterate or something that you want to make sure or you feel is important for uh, school counselors to know about alexithymia? Yeah, there's there's a few. So alexithymia is related to a lower quality of life when it goes on for a long period of time. It's a risk factor for an increase in mental health and behavioral problems. It can really get in the way of someone managing stress effectively. It can lead to breakdowns in social or interpersonal relationships. There's plenty of studies that show that people with higher traits of alexithymia often report feeling more lonely, which makes sense because if they have alexithymia, that may get in the way of friendship making, getting along with other people. There's a couple studies that show, too, as adults, this can contribute to lower marital quality. I get emails again on this all the time. Just think about it. If one one partner 
can't ever display emotions and the other partner is always trying to share how they feel, that can be very tricky. Yes. This is more common in men, the research says, than women. Six to 10% of the general population deal with traits of this again. But when we're talking about clinical populations, we're talking about neurocognitive, neurodevelopmental, trauma and stress-related disorders, that number may jump as high as 50% or more. So if you're working with students that fall under those umbrellas, pretty good chance that half your students may have this. This, again, looks like problems naming, labeling, making sense of emotions in others and in themselves. And again, you're probably coming into contact with this, not just with your students, but with your coworkers too, especially if your coworkers dealing with a lot of stress outside of work. They're dealing with burnout. COVID-19 sure did not help with this situation. Yeah. So just look around in society too. The more stress that's going on, the less people are sleeping, the less we're eating healthy, the less we are not disengaging from technology. Excessive screen time exposure is not good. It makes our emotions more numb. And over the long haul, this can really lead to breakdowns in relationships. And we know loneliness, not good. Depression, anxiety, everything goes up. So Definitely, I don't think you'd go wrong with learning about this topic, regardless of whatever hat you wear in your own personal life and professional life. Definitely. And it sounds like we can't go wrong with a little more mindfulness and being present in our lives either. Oh, absolutely not. Yes, I 100% agree. Yes. Well, Dr. Brown, I thank you so much for this very enlightening conversation. I've I've learned a lot, and I'm sure that um, the listeners will learn so much as well. And thank you for extending um, your hand for um, further information if we'd like it. I, I truly appreciate your time. Thank you, and you're welcome. And I love what the work you're doing. And yes, I'm here to help. Reach out anytime, folks. I can share you links to articles and other podcasts I've done on this topic. Awesome. Thank you. Zeninich copyrighted podcast and website offer opinions of Dr. Lakeisha Hudson, Dr. Kiki Zeninich LLC, and or guests. Content is for information only, not medical advice. Consult a professional for health concerns. Opinions are personal and do not reflect workplaces. Privacy is a priority. All names may be altered for confidentiality. Not for legal use. No guarantee of accuracy. No doctor-patient relationship established. For errors, email 423.4.doctor.kiki at gmail.com.